0: Welcome to the Men of Valor program. Uh, Randy, we're in our ongoing series that's been uh, occasionally interrupted on uh, books that are influential in our field. Uh, So today we're going to talk about two different authors, but the same subject.
1: Well, that sounds great. Uh, The series is moving along and we've had uh, some nice comments on it, some nice likes from those listening to the podcast. And so we really appreciate that kind of feedback. And so uh, what have you got in store for our listeners today? (laughs)
0: Well, the uh, the general topic uh, is uh, emotional incest, and uh, it, the reason I thought about it for today is because it seems to me that uh, a fair number of the men that I deal with here are uh, uh, dealing with emotional incest, and uh, there are two authors that we encourage those guys to read, and uh, I think there's a lot of people out there that <clears throat> really haven't necessarily considered this one but it's really kind of very, uh, very powerful.
1: Well, could we start by you explaining to us what emotional incest is?
0: Yeah. Emotional incest is when a parent is lonely, uh, and that could be for a variety of reasons, but mainly the fact that the spouse, uh, let's say it's a mother, is lonely. And it could be that her spouse is gone through divorce. Uh, It could be that they're gone through death. Or it could be that uh, there's neither divorce nor death, but the uh, husband, in this case, if it's a mother, is uh, emotionally, uh, sometimes even physically, unavailable. You know, the workaholic husbands out there who are gone a lot uh, to work.
1: The traveling salesman, always on the road kind of thing?
0: Well, that could be part of it. Uh, But generally, uh, the main thing is that whatever creates the absence, uh, they're not emotionally available to the spouse, in this case, the mother. So the mother then would turn to one of the children, most likely a son in this case, and uh, kind of turn that son, or it could be a daughter into uh, basically a surrogate spouse. So the mother would be sharing lots of emotional information, she could be sharing how angry or disappointed she is with the father. She could be sharing emotions with the son. And uh, basically what the son is learning is that it is his job to uh, kind of take care of the mother. Mm-hmm. And uh, this happens in many cases at a very early age. So what what is the result of it is that the child basically learns that he doesn't have, or he shouldn't have, or he can't have his own needs. His job is to pay attention to the needs of the mother, in this case, or, in general, the parent.
1: Well, that's a lot of pressure to be putting on a child, of course. Right. Uh, And uh, no matter what age uh, the child is, uh, that's a, a burden that would be hard to understand and to bear.
0: That's right. Now, the first book that I saw in regards to this, is called The Emotional Incest Syndrome, and that's by uh, a colleague of ours who I've had the opportunity over the years to speak with, uh, speak at conferences with, and her name is uh, Patricia Love, Dr. Patricia Love. I don't know, whenever I say her name, I kind of laugh because, you know, how, how is it your lot in life to be writing books on uh, recovery, and your last name is love. But she's a very nice person, very uh, intelligent, very insightful. And uh, when I first picked up her book, and it has to be now 20 plus years ago, and I read the first several pages, is it's like one of those books where I just knew that she was describing something with which I was, you know, well familiar. So now the emotional incest syndrome is basically going to describe uh, for the emotional incest victim, you know, the kind of, oh, the wor- what's the word I'm looking for, deficiencies that uh, the victim has. And in my case, the reason I related to it is not because uh, I was emotionally molested by my mother. Actually, it was the reverse. My father was the one who was lonely and... At least this is, by the way, this is my perception of uh, my father and uh, the fact that uh, he didn't have the relationship with my mother on a deeper emotional, perhaps even spiritual uh, level uh, that they should have had. And uh, I was the oldest uh, in my family. I only had the one brother. And uh, since I was the oldest, uh, my father turned to me and one of the, you know, things he did was he would describe me always as his best friend, his uh his uh number one buddy. And uh he would share things with me, tell me things that at age even three, four, five, you know, I had no business hearing about. And uh my father would take me on his pastoral calls. He was a a pastor, many of our listeners know this, and uh uh, I think he was. I think he was lonely. He didn't have a colleague even that he was necessarily sharing with about any kind of pastoral issues he had. And so, I believe at the time, you know, people would look at this and say, "Isn't that wonderful that uh, Doctor lazer and by Doctor lazer I'm referring to my dad uh, is taking his son with him everywhere he goes?" You know, and uh, I, you know I can recall even at a, at that early age of three and four you know, I was going to the hospitals. And uh, if the hospital allowed it, which was not always the case in those days, you know, my dad would actually take me into the room, (laughs) you know, to visit these very sick people. If the hospital didn't allow it, uh, he would park me in the uh, hospital... Waiting room? Not waiting room, it was more of a, like a cafe or a soda fountain, and uh, which they had more of in those days and i you know he would uh you know ply me with cokes and you know candies and you know that kind of thing and i i just wait for him to come back down and then of course when uh i came, he came back down he was going to tell me all about the visit what the sickness was you know the things that he did or said uh that kind of thing the one that i remember the most because of uh, uh the fact that it was uh, more present for me to be In this situation, was when he would visit the nursing homes, and uh, he would uh, always take me into the room of the parishioner of his. It's now in a nursing home, and uh, we we would visit. And of course, these people in the nursing home were always glad to see, you know, a blonde haired little boy, young person, come into the situation. Mm -hmm. The other example of that was uh, uh, he visited a lot of shut-ins. You know that. We're not in a nursing home, but you know not able to go out, and um, uh, he would often take communion to these people, and uh, he would hand me his uh, communion case, which you know had uh, the wine, the wafers, uh, in our case, in this little black box. And I would literally carry that carry that in and and set it up for him, you know to serve <laughs> communion to these shut-ins. So I've often said that you know I was getting trained in uh, being a pastor, and at this point, I haven't even been to school yet. But the main feature of it was that I think that my dad uh, was needing uh, a colleague, a friend, uh, someone to share with, and uh, you know, I became that uh, special person. What, what I think the result of it is that you know, I became hyper-focused or attentive to uh, what my dad's needs were. Uh, not necessarily my own. I I might have needed to stay home and play. I might have needed to stay home and take a nap or something. Given
1: the opportunity to be a little kid.
0: Yeah, given the opportunity to be a little kid. Yeah, this strikes
1: me, Mark, as both sad and so uh, complex and Mm -hmm. uh, complicated when you also realize the acting out that your dad did with you.
0: Yeah, earlier Yeah, also. You know? Yeah.
1: When you, when you combine his need for you right. um, as this companion and yet knowing the history of the acting out that he did uh, with you at a very young age, it's, mm-hmm. uh, that's, um, boy, you, you have, uh, you, you have a, uh, a lot of experiences that you have survived.
0: Right, that's right. Well, I think, um, you know, as you say that, you know, I, I am certainly aware of all the work I've had to do on that dynamic, both sexually and now i 'm talking about emotionally and what what I was learning you know when you think about you know how God works in our lives, you know i I do think God was able to use that experience in in helping me to be the caregiver uh, that I eventually became mm-hmm. uh, and you know, I was destined at that point. You know, yeah. by the, the age of five. Well,
1: it seems like you you learned uh, compassion, yeah, uh, for right. uh, the the shut-ins, the elderly, the yeah. sickly. That's right. um, you know, because of those uh, tag-along experiences that that uh, you had there. Yeah. That's um, right. Uh, As we're preparing to go to break here, um, repeat for me one more time the name of the book that you're recommending for anybody that wants to learn more about this.
0: Yeah, and it's certainly true, by the way, we should say this, that uh, it could be a daughter who is uh, emotionally, as we say, molested by her father, you know, surrogate wife in that case, Uh, and it certainly could also be a a mother emotionally molesting uh, her daughter. And that's why this first book is more of a general book about emotional incest. And that is by uh, Dr. Patricia Love uh, called The Emotional Incest Syndrome.
1: And with that, we're going to take our break. You're listening to Dr. Mark Laser, and this is the Men of Valor
0: program. Trigger of the Week, Randy, we were uh, uh, talking with uh, our colleague who's uh, counselor here, uh, and who, you know, was on our show talking about attachments, Jim. Jim Farm. Jim Farm. And uh, he is in that situation in life that many of us go through where his oldest son is now starting to look at colleges. And, uh, he's like a junior in high school. Yeah. He's
1: preparing for his senior year. So the summer before the senior year, uh, he's gotten serious about seeing what his uh, choices are.
0: Yeah. And they've been on the proverbial, uh, <laughs>
1: family, <laughs> family we'll, we'll call it the family summer vacation, but it was the college visits. It was the it? college yeah.
0: visits to various places. Yeah. And, uh, he was just saying that, uh, uh, even as they started this in the spring and, uh, College was still in session. They would drive by these fraternity and sorority houses, and they would uh, they would notice the partying that was going on, uh, the girls that were perhaps not always appropriately dressed, and you know it was they were in the same car, and he has other boys, and it's like <laughs> he,
1: every, <laughs> he has three boys. Has That's all he has. he has is boys, boys, and 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 a very sharp wife who notices everything. Because yeah. he said, you know, it's bad enough if. If you're making these observations, it's a different thing when your wife is saying take a look at that. I mean, yeah, because right. it's it's just kind of synonymous with college campus life. Mm-hmm. You're driving down most of our college campuses, even here for us at the University of Minnesota, if you drive down University Avenue, it's lined with the fraternity and sorority houses. That's right. And the, the front lawns are filled with attractive young people.
0: That's right, and partying and drinking yes. and all that kind of Music, stuff. Music and all kinds Music, of Music, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah Debbie and I... Uh, as you know, uh, have a house in, uh, that we bought to be close to our grandchildren in Ames, Iowa. It's just kind of like our Northern cabin, except that it's a, it's a house in a university town. Well, it happens to be two blocks from the main sorority area. In fact, it's two blocks from Debbie's sorority, uh, when we were dating, cause Debbie went to Iowa State. Uh, and so these girls are walking by all the time at my, our house and, uh, So I I guess the trigger of the week is college campuses (laughs) and uh, sorority houses. But, you know, it could be the dorms and, you know, all that kind of stuff, too.
1: Well, and, Mark, we are uh, a short – we're uh – I think like a month away from the first college football game. I mean, it it starts at the end of August now. Uh, I know that uh, the the University of Minnesota's first game is, while it's still in August. So uh, these observations of college campuses and campus life and uh, Mm -hmm. those kind of things uh, make for an accurate uh, trigger uh, for our listeners to be aware of.
0: I'm not always as aware of the University of Minnesota football schedule. The old joke is... I moved to uh, Minnesota to get as far away from football as I could. Oh yes, well, okay. We we we
1: will have to take you back to the '60s when they were the national champions. Well, so, yes, but uh, how
0: many years ago is that? Randy? Well, I don't know. I mean, that's sixty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I was very young at the time. You were. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, well, right. let's, let's, let's uh, bring our listeners back to uh, the, uh, the authors that, that you want to talk about today.
0: Yeah, The Emotional Incest Syndrome. Well, you know, we could move on to the second book, which is uh, one that does affect a lot of the men that uh, we deal with here, and it's called Silently Seduced. You, you, know, you, th- you hear that title, and you, you've got to have a reaction to that. Uh, but it's by uh, uh, a colleague of mine, a good friend, Dr. Ken Adams, uh, A-D-A-M-S, and uh, silently seduced. And it's basically describing the emotional incest as, uh, syndrome as it applies to a mother and a son. So, as we were describing earlier in the first half of the show, uh, this would be where uh, the mother is uh, very lonely and uh, could be, the like I said earlier, the father is dead, there's a the divorce, or he's just a workaholic or a withdrawer, and he's just not emotionally available, Uh, the mother turns to the son to take care of all of her needs. We have a man, for example, and I don't think he'd mind me anonymously using his example, but his father died when he was five. He had older siblings who were like in uh, uh, high school, at least, uh, when he was five. So he came along a little bit later in life. And uh, since he was five, you know, he was... Uh, kind of available. He was there all the time. And uh, when the father died, you know, that was a huge loss for the son too. But, you know, the mother in her loneliness turned to him and uh, shared with him her grief, her sadness, and then throughout his life in many ways sought to control him by uh, teaching him that her needs came before his. So let's just imagine what happens to this kid now as he grows older and even starts to date
1: sure because his siblings uh, all have left the house by the time that he's reaching those ages um he was the late arrival in the family so i'm um, it's only probably natural that the mother has really clung to him
0: yeah that's right now let me just say that this particular man is one of the the kinder men that you're going to meet he is you know very affirming he is uh, just a a a really good guy i think and um One of the things we need to talk about with this emotional incest syndrome is that while he was learning to take care of his mother and all of her emotional needs, and by the way, we should say here that this did not ever involve any kind of sexual molestation. You know, she was inappropriately uh, touching parts of his body or seeking to get him engaged in sexual activity. But uh, it did involve almost a, a romantic type of relationship then sometimes that's how we put it. And in that sense, when it's kind of romantic, like you're the surrogate spouse, any kind of touch uh, becomes, you know, kind of icky. That's the, that's the word I always use with it. Uh, it just doesn't feel right. It, it feels eroticized. That's another more clinical term that we use. And uh, as a result of that, you know, this man has had a problem with touch and needing touch and uh, seeking to get touched at times uh, inappropriately, and I'm not going to get into all of that detail. I'm just here to say that you know we're going to cope with the lack of stuff that happens in a healthy way. So, in other words, this this woman might give her son a hug, but it didn't feel right given the nature yeah. of the emotional incest going on.
1: It didn't feel like a mother's hug to him. That's right. It had a different element a to different it. Different energy to it, yeah. as
0: we say. Right. Now this guy grew up and uh, he he did find uh, a woman to marry and I think this is one of the more important dynamics here. It's like um, we talk all the time about Genesis chapter 2 which is repeated by Jesus and later Paul where we say that a man leaves his mother and father and a woman leaves her home and the two become one flesh. Well an emotional incest perpetrator like this guy's mother uh, does not let go. So you get married and uh, she is still seeking that special relationship with her son. Those of you wives that might be listening today, uh, who are married to uh, a man who is uh, an emotional incest victim by his uh, mother, you will feel almost in not almost you will pretty definitely feel in competition with, with his mother. With and, his mother, and uh, she's going to come over and she's going to suggest and do and you know uh, want and need uh, you know, all these kind of things. We've often said with tongue in cheek that it's a little bit like you're committing polygamy here. You know, you're married to your mother and, uh, uh, you're now married to your wife and, uh, you know, there's a conflict there and the wives know what that's like. And, uh, you know, I would say even in my situation where it wasn't my mother, it was my father. I, you know, I, I I think Debbie, if she were on the show today could tell you that there was always that, uh, Kind of conflict uh, with my father's needs, and uh, uh, i don't need to go on with that except to say you know it can it can be that dynamic too it doesn't always just need to be the mother mo- uh, emotionally molesting the son now dr. Adams' uh, book Silently Seduced is you know very good at describing all of this and also very good at describing what uh, a man needs to do in this situation. And I I think the the way to simplify that the best is simply to say there needs to be a divorce between the son and the mother. And uh, occasionally, what that means is that, for a period of time at least, uh, I'm not gonna have any contact whatsoever with my mother. We have another guy here, again, I don't think he'd mind me using his example anonymously, but uh, he went through a period of time where he he said to his mother he didn't want to have any contact with her and she would not let that go she would send him emails and texts just emotionally pouring her heart out that you know this was painful this was terrible uh she's not honoring or he's not honoring her you know the violation of the commandments and uh she just guilted him you know
1: tapping into every motherly guilt mechanism known to man that's right? right
0: and Part of the problem was that when uh, he was with her, she constantly demanded uh, some kind of physical touch. You know, not an appropriate sexual touch, but uh, she wanted hugs, she wanted uh, kisses, you know, and that kind of thing. And so after a number of uh, years, him trying to state his boundaries about these kinds of things, she just wouldn't listen. And he was describing not so long ago that uh, at a uh, family gathering, uh, she snuck up on him from behind and uh, kissed him on the cheek. Well, you know, he said that that just felt so completely uh, awful and it felt like a huge boundary violation, and it was. Mm-hmm. Now, again, for those couples listening where this uh, syndrome, the emotional incest syndrome or the you know, emotionally incestuous mother exists, like Dr. Adams describes, you know, uh, the husband is going to have a hard time having a healthy attachment to the wife because uh, sometimes the wife represents female energy and the husband has learned through his own coping to kind of push that away you know when you're when you grow up with an emotional incest perpetrator you kind of get good at trying to push that away and when that gets into a marriage uh, you can see how some of the Wives feel, you know, you're being emotionally present with other people now in your in your support or counseling groups, but you don't seem to be able to give me any emotional support. Well, that's because of the victimization and kind of wanting to, to push that kind of attention away.
1: Hearing you describe this in such detail um, makes me... Um relieved to hear that there are good resources like both of these books that are are meant to help anyone out there hearing today's podcast, that uh, there is help and guidance available uh, if you are one of these individuals that Mark has been describing today. It is time for us to wrap up today's show. Mm -hmm. And with that in mind, um, give us your closing thoughts.
0: Well, I think it's like we talk about with the healing of any form of abuse, whether it's physical, sexual, spiritual, emotional, uh, this is a a fairly profound case of emotional abuse. But we know that there is healing possible, there's healing in community, and uh, the best thing that uh, all of our listeners can think about, if any of this is true for you, uh, don't just do some reading, uh, do some sharing about it with your community.
1: You have been listening to Dr. Mark Laser. I'm Randy Everett, your co-host, and we thank you for listening to us today on the Men of Valor program. We look forward to joining you again soon. And in the meantime, we hope that this week is a week that for you is filled with many blessings and great vision.